it's John 3, 22 to 36. I need page 752 or 1066. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. But no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. Um, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you also for your Holy Spirit who uh, helps us to understand your word and uh, put it into practice in our lives. And so we pray for ourselves and we, as we pray also for the uh, children in Kids Church that um, now that you would enable us to focus, to uh, concentrate and Father God to, uh, to process what we're learning that it would help us to uh, live with Jesus as the uh, uh, one who is supreme in our lives. And in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> what are the things which make you feel joyful? Uh, joy, it's an interesting emotion, isn't it? It's, it's different from happiness. Uh, there's a lot of things in life that do make us happy, but I think that joy... Uh, is on a different level, isn't it, to happiness? It's something which goes deeper. I did check a couple of dictionaries to find out how they define joy. One of them said that joy is, and I quote, an intense and especially ecstatic or exultant happiness. Um, what do you think of that? Uh, another one said this. It said that joy is, quote, a deep feeling of or condition of happiness or contentment. And what we see in that, and I think we'd agree that joy uh, involves happiness, but it's, it's much deeper, it's a much richer experience than mere happiness. Um, what is it that makes you feel joyful? I think we tend to feel joy uh, when uh, we experience something which connects 
uh, with something which is really, really important to us. There's a certain joy in seeing the skies open and, and the rain come flooding down. It's beautiful. Um, and when, the, when something happens which connects well with our sense of meaning and our sense of purpose in life, uh, and it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, it's like, I think, for example, of when, uh, when one of our children, you know, we invest <coughs> our lives into our children, we do everything for them, uh, and when they do something which is really, really good, then uh, we experience joy, don't we, in that? It's, it's richer than just happiness. Uh, in today's passage, John the Baptist claims to have experienced what he describes as being complete joy, like 100% joy. Have a look at what he says in uh, John chapter 3, verse 29, if you care to open that up. Uh, he says, and I quote, That joy is mine, and now it is complete. And I think that that raises some questions, doesn't it? Um, why is John joyful? Uh, what is his source of joy? And I want to know, how can I have a piece of that? Don't you? How can we be joyful? How can we have that experience of complete, um, 100% perfect joy? Now, uh, John had his own disciples, his own followers. And when we meet them here in this passage, they are not joyful. In fact, they are anything but joyful. They're like the opposite of joy. Um, we'll explore that. But the, 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 the passage opens with some baptisms taking place. And they're taking place in two different places. Uh, first of all, in verse 22, Jesus, we're told, and his disciples had gone into the Judean countryside... And there, they were baptising people. And then, secondly, of course, John is also baptising people. Um, he's doing so at a place called Anon. I think that's how you pronounce it, Anon. And apparently in verse 23, uh, Anon was a particularly good place for baptisms because what do you need for baptisms to be really good? You need water, don't you? We've tried doing full immersion baptisms on church camp out at Camp Elam at Foster and failed because there wasn't enough water. It wasn't deep enough. But at Enon, they've got plenty of what we've experienced now today and over this weekend they've got plenty of water and that's a good spot for doing baptisms and people were constantly coming to be baptised. Now, it was in that setting, in verse 25, that John's disciples got into, how should we describe it, a lively discussion with someone. Uh, someone who is described simply as being a certain Jew. Uh, this is actually an argument. And they were arguing about ceremonial washings. Now, we, we don't know the details of that argument, um, but uh, I could hazard a guess as to what, you know, you know the context... Uh, perhaps they were arguing about the differences between ceremonial washings and baptism. That wouldn't be far off the mark, I don't think. Uh, nevertheless, we don't know the details, but somehow in their argument the issue of Jesus came up. Because when they took the matter to John, what were they interested in? 
Did they go to John and say, John, we'd like your explanation about the differences between ceremonial washings and baptisms. What's the theological differences between the two? No. Have a look at verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, you know, the one that you testified about, well, he is baptising. And everyone is going to him. You sense a bit of attitude there, isn't there? And uh, they're not thrilled, it seems, about what's going on with Jesus. I mean, who is this Jesus guy? Jesus owed his position to John because John was the one who testified about him. But now what's happening? The crowds, they're going to Jesus. That's what's happening. Now, they're exaggerating when they say that everyone is going to Jesus. Um, that's just rhetoric. In verse 24, plenty of people are still going to John. Um, and that's, uh, but there was more that were going to Jesus. And to them, that's a problem. Uh, we see this a little bit clearer in chapter 4, verse 1, where apparently even the Pharisees became aware that Jesus was attracting the bigger crowds. Uh, although in John chapter 4, verse 2, it tells us that Jesus himself um, did not do any baptisms. Uh, it was his disciples who did the baptizing. We're not, it's not explained why Jesus didn't do the baptisms, but we could, again, we could guess at that. Imagine later on in church life when people are saying, well, I was baptized by Paul. Someone says, I was baptized by Peter. Someone says, I, I was baptized by Jesus. You know, trump that. We don't know. Um, but that's possible. The point is, and, and by the way, this is the only part in scripture where we uh, see, uh, where we hear about Jesus' disciples baptising anyone um, before his uh, resurrection and ascension and the um, outflowing of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, um, uh, his disciples were doing the baptisms, but the issue was popularity. And John's disciples appear to be indignant. So how did John respond to that? Well, in verses 27 to 30, John turns the issue back on them. Have a look at it, verse 27. To this, John replied, A man can, only, can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Uh, so they had complained that uh, John had testified about Jesus but now Jesus was becoming more popular. And so John asks them, well, what exactly did I testify about Jesus? Come on, what did I tell you? What did I say about him? Didn't I testify that I am not the Christ? That I am only the one who's been sent ahead of the Christ? You see, in verse 27, a man can only receive what is given him from heaven. John has received the role of preparing for Jesus and pointing others to him. That was his God-given job. That was his task. That was his purpose. Now, 
John was unique uh, in that uh, situation. He uniquely had that role of preparing the way for the Christ. But there is a principle here which is true for us as well. Because God has given us a role, hasn't he? He has given us the role of pointing people to Jesus. Um, pointing them to the Christ. And when we forget that, we can lose our joy. When we stop pointing people to Jesus, even though we might be very active in ministry, if it's not all about Jesus, then we can actually become joyless. We can even be people who are complainers, people who are joy sappers, joy suckers. We take away joy. Um, as a pastor, I know that um, one of the dangers for church leaders is the desire to be popular, um, or at least more popular than other pastors, you know, <clears throat> especially ones that might be down the road or in the same town. Um, or as Christians, we can be tempted to rank churches according to how many people attend, how popular they are, how many people flock to a particular church. And of course, uh, we should rejoice when lots of people are in church and uh, when they're actually hearing God's word. That's something which should bring joy to our hearts, shouldn't it? No matter what church they're in, if, they're, if the church is preaching God's word, if the gospel is central, then we should be rejoicing in that. Um, however, we need to be careful about comparisons and uh, comparing numbers in, say, our church to other churches uh, where the gospel is being faithfully preached. Because when we, can do, when we do that, it can lead to two types of sin. Uh, firstly, when compared to a bigger church, it can lead to a lack of thankfulness to God for what he's doing amongst us and through us. But when we compare ourselves to smaller churches... Uh, it can lead to pride because we think that we're somehow doing better than them as if it's all about us. When in fact there are other factors at work. Um, and in both comparisons, it's just too much of us and not enough of Jesus. Now, um, and that's no matter how accurately we preach the gospel, by the way. It's an attitude that we have in our hearts. Our task is to point people back to Jesus, to the Jesus who lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago and who's now exalted with God the Father in heaven. Uh, whereas John, his task was to make preparations for the coming Jesus. And in fact, in verses 29 to 30, John compares... Um, his role to being like the best man at a friend's wedding. Um, now, fellows amongst us here, who's been a best man at someone's wedding? Put your hand up. Yeah, probably you know, a dozen or so of us have done that job. Uh, in our culture, I think the best man doesn't really do very much. Would that be right? I've done the best man job myself. And I remember <coughs> all I did was um, put on the suit turn up at the wedding, hand over the rings, um, say a few words at the reception and that was it. It was easy. Uh, one thing, although I th suspect that um, 
I probably didn't do what all is actually required in our culture. Nevertheless, uh, one thing that a best man shouldn't do, the best man should not steal the show because it's not about him. Um, I do remember seeing a video of best men stealing the show. Uh, it was at an outdoor wedding next to a swimming pool. And as he stepped forward to uh, hand over the rings, he uh, happened to bump the bride backwards. That was a big splash. He really did steal the show, didn't he? That best man. It was all about him as she tumbled into the pool. <laughs> Google it on YouTube. Now, in John's day, the best man had a lot to do. Uh, he uh, arranged the preliminaries for the wedding. Um, he managed and he presided over the wedding feast. Uh, in verse 29, he considered it a joy to serve the groom. And here the groom is Christ. And friends, if the groom is Christ, who is the bride? It's us. It's the church. Um, I'm not sure that I've, I've met too many um, best men who would say that they were just filled with perfect joy, you know, in their role. Um, although, as a sort of equivalent, I, I remember a conversation I had with an old friend a number of years back where we spoke about a mutual friend uh, who had been happily married to a lovely, uh, godly Christian woman and uh, they just had this beautiful marriage and this beautiful family and my friend quietly said to me, you know what, Scott? I was the one who introduced them to each other. And you could sense this joy uh, in his voice, this joy uh, in knowing that... Um, uh, that, that he'd been involved in that, but it was joy for the sake of his friend. A great happiness that um, things had worked out so well. I don't know if he was the best man at the wedding, but he would have made a good choice. And I think that captures the sense of what John is saying here. Here, the best man is John. Um, he, has, he is the one who has prepared the heart of the bride. He's arranged the wedding and in verse 29, the joy of the best man belongs to him, to John. And as the crowds go to Jesus, his joy is now complete. That was his role. That's what he wanted to do. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine the best man never wanting to have the bride for himself. Although in our sinful culture, it wouldn't surprise me. But John's point is that the church belongs to Jesus and nothing could bring him more joy than that. You see, Jesus is no mere prophet. Um, <clears throat> people these days want to lump Jesus in with all of the other religious leaders in history. They talk about Moses, Muhammad, Buddha, John the Baptist, Jesus, as if they're all just enlightened human beings, but friends... Jesus is in a class of his own. Have a look at what John says about him in, uh, in verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. 
The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Now, it's a fair bit packed into that, isn't there? Uh, I might just unpack it a little bit for you. Uh, and John is basically saying, as I said earlier, that Jesus is in a class of his own. And he gives his disciples three reasons for that. Firstly, in verses 31 to 32, John has come from the earth. He's just a normal person, a prophet, yes, but he's never been to heaven. When John preaches about heaven, he's just passing on the message that God has given him. But when Jesus speaks of heaven, it's another matter, isn't it? It's because he's come from heaven. He's existed in heaven for all of eternity. Uh, that which he, he, he speaks of what he's actually seen and heard. Secondly, in verse 34, God the Father has given the Holy Spirit to Jesus without limit. He doesn't have half of the Spirit or doesn't need an extra filling of the Spirit. He's, he has it all. Um, and thirdly, in verse 35... God the Father, because God the Father loves God the Son, he has placed everything, he's placed the whole universe in the hands of Jesus. Now, think about it this way. What would you think um, to be the most important part of God's creation, if you could name something? Hard to say, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's all important. All of the creation is good. Everything that God has made is good. And the, the creation is just incredibly integrated. Take one part of it out and you don't know what the repercussions of that are. Don't care for the environment. You don't know what the repercussions are. All of God's creation is good. But friends... The most important part of God's creation is not the stars, it's not the planets, it's not the... You know what it is? It's the church. It's us. It's, it's, it's you and me. I mean, we may not look very impressive. In fact, often we look very unimpressive. But God's ultimate goal in creation has been to create for himself a people a people who are his very own, a people who are eager to, to live for him, to love him, to honour him, to obey him, to be in relationship with him forever. Um, Titus chapter 2 verse 14, if you want a verse uh, for that. And he's made this possible. He's created this people of God through the death and the resurrection of Christ for us. He's handed everything, he's handed us into the hands of his son. So that how you respond to Jesus actually seals your destiny. Verse 36 could not be clearer, could not be clearer. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. 
there's, there's two, two categories, isn't there? There's people who believe in the Son, who have eternal life, there's those who reject the Son, who will not see life. There's no in-between, there's no third category, there's no fence to sit on. It's either you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you trust in Him and you receive eternal life because of who He is. If you reject the Son, then you pay the penalty for your own sin. God's wrath remains on you. So how does this therefore impact our joy? Well, Jesus has a few things to say about joy. And uh, in summary, uh, what he does say is that if we remain in his love and if we obey his commands, then our joy will be complete. Because life is all about Jesus. Reject Jesus and God's wrath remains on you. You will suffer eternally in hell uh, or believe in Jesus and have eternal life forever. It's, it's all about him, isn't it? And our response to him. And so therefore the church is all about Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. He is our groom. And like John, we are to point people, not to ourselves, but to him. Now, um, John's disciples were cranky because Jesus was more popular. That meant that their selfish ambitions couldn't be fulfilled. But John wasn't like that. The crowds are coming to him, but more of them are going to Jesus. And so faced with the inevitable decline of his influence, how does he feel? Well, the word happiness just doesn't cut it. He describes his feelings as complete joy, deep, profound, contented happiness. And so he says in verse 30, I must become less. He must become greater. Friends, the world tells us that life is all about loving yourself first, uh, loving others second, and then God, well, doesn't even come into it. But the Bible turns that upside down so that it's Jesus first, others second, and ourselves last. Uh, John the Baptist claimed to be in possession of complete joy. I want to ask you this question. Do you know what it feels like to have complete joy? It's not just happiness, is it? Uh, I want to share with you a little bit about what the Apostle Peter wrote in uh, 1 Peter. Uh, where speaking to the church, he, he says this, he says, though you are, and talking about Jesus, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy. That's what the Christians to whom Peter was writing were to experience, an inexpressible and glorious joy and why? Why? Because rather than being those amongst those upon whom God's wrath remains, 
Peter was able to say to them that they are in fact receiving the goal of their faith, the salvation of their souls. Does that bring you joy to know that? You see, here's the irony that complete joy, the peace and the contentment and the satisfaction that we crave will not be found if we put ourselves first even in ministry it can only be found when we live for the very purpose for which we've been made life with God through the death and the resurrection of his son and pointing not to ourselves but to him who loved us and gave himself up for us See, it's not about us, is it? It's all, ever and only about Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, for sending your own Son uh, to come into our world so that by his death and resurrection that your wrath would not remain on us, but rather that we would receive eternal life through believing in him. Father, we pray that, um, uh, that uh, uh, you would uh, take away um, all of our pride and our uh, human desire for popularity and success and help us to, to crave only after your glory and the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, lead us, Lord God, to be uh, in situations where we can talk to others and point them to Jesus, that they might find the joy that we have in him. Amen.